Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to this episode of Zero the Educate. In today's episode, we go on a journey to make sense of the markets and economy as a whole. From lifetime highs to inflation, role of central banks in today's markets, to gold and bringing international exposure to your portfolio. Guiding us in this journey, we have a market veteran, Mr. Kalpen Parek, MD and CEO of DSP Mutual Fund, and Mr. Sahil Kapoor, Head of Product and Market Strategies at DSP. A lot of insights throughout, so make sure you stick around until the end, and like always, enjoy the conversation. Kalpen, Sahil, welcome to the show. So good to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Kalpen, you have been on this show multiple times, but this is Sahil's first time. So Sahil, how about a background? How did you get started in investment management? And how did DSP happen to you? What is your role at DSP? So I joined the financial industry about uh, a decade and a half ago. And uh, I started as a trader come research analyst. So I used to trade for a proprietary desk. And then later on, I uh, jumped ship and joined the wealth management business. I've been with the wealth management investment management business for uh, nearly about 12 years now. And uh, sometime back, I joined DSV Mutual Fund in the capacity of uh, head of products and also uh, the market strategist where I, uh, you know, looking at macroeconomics and forming our opinion on that. So, so and uh, DSP happened when, you know, Kalpen and I spoke to each other and we thought that there is common ground in terms of building up a good thought process around investment ideas. And that's how we connected and uh, this got done. Kalpen, in this last one year, you've seen Nifty crash and burn and then now making lifetime highs every single day as we speak. So from your vantage point, what have been some key takeaways? Because I'm sure even with the experience, this period has been exciting or different for sure. I keep, uh, you know, giving this uh, information that uh, our age, it's a lifetime high every day morning when we wake up. And uh, hence, we shouldn't make uh, much about uh, all-time highs for asset classes. Uh, generally, asset classes which have inherent uh, uh, growth drivers over a cycle will always keep uh, hitting all-time highs. And then there can be phases of consolidation, phases of correction, which are very difficult to really, you know, model for or, uh, or time. So, uh, you know, I think uh, I have learned over time to take this in my stride and not really uh, worry too much about it. Uh, you just recognize that uh, when markets, uh, you know, move very fast, and uh, their uh, short-term returns are much higher than what generally the inherent long-term return nature of the market is. Uh, you just need to be uh, less greedy about your future return expectations. And uh, depending on uh, your personal uh, appetite of uh, returns as well as risk, you calibrate your portfolios accordingly. So I think uh, these phases of uh, all-time highs and you know cycle lows will continue to oscillate and uh, uh, you know, come through over the next three to five years. Uh, as investors, uh, and, and I have gone through this, you know, I've seen the uh, 99, 2000 high and then four years of zero return. I've seen the 2003 to 2007 phase of um, Nifty going up seven times uh, within a span mm-hmm. of four years. And then for six years, zero returns. And then again, 2013 to 2021 uh, has been a phase of just 200% return on an absolute basis. So these cycles will continue to, you know, oscillate and fluctuate. Uh, as investors, we just need to be conscious that they will happen. And uh, when they happen, uh, what should be my plan of action? Sometimes the plan of action is to do nothing. Uh, if you really don't need to do anything or you don't need your money. Sometimes the plan of action could be rebalancing your portfolios or some bit of profit booking uh, and uh, realigning your asset allocation. Sahil, you folks have been publishing a lot of data on the Indian and global economy landscape especially the macro aspects of it. So what does Indian and global economy looks like right now from your perspective? Can you give us a 10,000 foot view? Let's look at some numbers just to put things into context. So before COVID hit us, the world GDP was about $87.5 trillion. These are the World Bank estimates. And uh, within a gap of one year, it fell about 3.5%. And... uh, now it, it's at about $84.5 trillion. So that's the overall hit to the global economy that has happened. Just to put this into context in some past instances, for example, when 
global financial crisis occurred in 2008 the hit to global gdp was 5 and a half percent so about 200 basis points or 2% more than what covid did eventually so when we were sitting in march april 2020 and when this all the things were occurring and you know as we progressed towards may june globally most economists most market participants thought that this is going to be like the mother of all crises you know it's going to be like once in a 100 year but when you now look at 18 months hence you see that the impact has not been even equal to global financial crisis in terms of gdp so from a very macro perspective i think we've done okay in the last 18 months but it has been a very very uneven kind of a impact you know uh, so to speak the inequality has gone up multifold people who you know if you divide them with between have and have nots between financial markets and real economy okay between bigger companies and smaller companies all the bigger guys have become bigger and i generally call it weak becoming weaker not big becoming bigger it's the weaker ones who've gone uh, and become even more weaker and, and that has what has happened in the global economy inflation clearly seems to be the biggest worry currently but inflation sadly is something we do not understand very well we understand the other aspect of time which is compounding but inflation is something which the average investor does not understand very well so if in the simplest terms possible if we could educate our listeners what is inflation how does it affect the average joe both equities and debt so roughly when you look at inflation how you should think about it is is a very simple macro model you know it's like a drag uh on you so when let's say if you are if you assume you are going to run a 10 kilometer race and if you wear uh let's say 5 kg extra on your body that 5 kg is going to become heavier and heavier as the race progresses that is what inflation is you know it becomes heavier and heavier even for the same amount because it's like reverse compounding you know it keeps on eating your returns eating your capital and if you don't beat it over time if you are unable to exert so much pressure that you can't maintain your speed you will eventually collapse right so it's very important to have returns which are in excess of inflation uh, which will probably add to your capital secondly there is also a concept of store of value so you could have investments which barely beat inflation or equal to inflation for example if inflation is at 5% and your return is also at 5% you will just about protect your purchasing power and probably that is not enough you know but if you want to create wealth add to your purchasing power uh, you have to beat inflation maybe by 1 or 2% over a 30 year period is is very very large so that is what you should think about hmm. that's a great way to see it one thing that's perplexing a lot of investors these days is that there is a disconnect between the real economy and the markets they have become severely disjointed and what happens in the real world doesn't really affect the market as much if anything it it does the reverse what uh, previously it used to do so how do you guys make sense of this puzzle at dsp sure uh, how i look at it is see the financial markets let's say the stock markets they are not slaves of the economy it's a very important concept a lot of people think that economy is directly reflected in the stock market but it is only true when it is doing well when it is not doing well there are other levers for markets to do well so let me put it this way markets are slaves of profit pools if companies are able to make better profits improve their financial position their stock prices are going to rise okay and if this happens in a bad economy you will still see stocks doing well so that is a disconnect in last one and a half years just to give you two numbers our overall gdp which was 203 lakh crores or 203 trillion in 2020 uh, fy20 so we speak fell to about 197 a fall of about 3% 197 trillion rupees but in the same time the let's say nifty eps it went up about 45% uh largely because of cost cutting because of huge upside in commodity prices which got translated into large profits good profitability in some of the banking sectors 
So all these numbers which showed up in the financial markets were a construct of how well companies navigated this crisis. And that's why this connect, disconnect looks very, very large. But let me tell you, this can't go on for a very long time. You know, eventually both of them will converge. You know, stock markets will probably cool off a bit as Kalpain said, uh, you know, uh, the returns generally tend towards their mean and economy will also revive and get back up. So it, it will be like a convergence over time. Yeah. You know, so uh, sometime last year in March, April, uh, we had uh, come up with a document uh, titled 2020, just uh, in the middle of uh, a peaks of COVID, first peak of COVID. And obviously, visibility was very poor at that point in time. So, you know, our investment team, when we were having this dialogue that how do you navigate uh, through this phase? And uh, uh, things were moving so fast. Stocks were moving down by 20-30% very quickly and moving up by 30-40% equally fast. So it's very difficult to adjust portfolios when you're running around 60-70,000 crores of equity assets. And, uh, you know, just one simple framework that the team uh, applied because your question was how, how does the team at DSP, you know, navigate this is we right. said let's uh, uh, follow just one simple rule. Companies which will become uh, better and stronger after this, um, uh, you know, entire uh, transition of one year, uh, we try and focus our portfolios around that. So within each sector, uh, there were two, three, four companies uh, which were uh, either, you know, uh, uh, transforming themselves very well, adapting and adjusting to the new uh, realities very well, leveraging technology very well. So a pizza company almost, you know, thinking like a digital company, uh, a mm -hmm. fertilizer company thinking of how to digitize their entire distribution channels and, uh, you know, reaching their distributors uh, in spite of lockdowns and so on and so forth. So we said, let's uh, polarize, uh, uh, you know, our portfolios towards uh, companies which are likely to survive and uh, companies which have a uh, very low amount of uh, leverage on its uh, books so that uh, navigation is easy because in March, April last year, you don't know uh, that whether this will end in three months or three years. So visibility mm. was very low. The only thing we could be focused on is uh, companies which are which have odds of survival and they are always probability. So I think that's how we navigate it by saying that, okay, let's stick to the leaders in each uh, sector, good se sectors or bad sectors, stick to the leaders uh, who have odds of survival. And I think that's how, you know, things have uh, shaped up over time. Mm -hmm. Stick to the leaders. That's an insight. Uh, pretty much all measures seem to signal at this point that the markets are overvalued and by a lot, some would say. The talk about being in a bubble has become all too common. So are we in a bubble or is this time any different? See, when you look at historical bubbles, you have some ingredients which are inherent. You know, uh, first is that there are multi-year of gains. You have four, five, six or even ten years of gains behind you, which I think is absent right now. Second, there is a very large leverage in the system, you know, all uh, let's say uh, HNI clients, retail clients, institutions, they sit on large leverage in terms of their stock position, which again I think is absent. We are absolutely on very low, thin leverage overall. Thirdly, you see multiple years of uh, positive sentiment, which of course I, we don't have. We have at least I think about eight months of positive sentiment to say the least. And uh, the last and one of the most important is at the peak of a bubble, so to speak, all asset classes do well, all of them. You know, you pick up everything, it will make money. Right now, I think it's it's not so true. Everything is not going up. There are certain asset classes you are doing well, certain which aren't doing so well. And last point, I think bubbles don't burst in a day. They sputter. That's what I say. It takes time. You don't, you can't put a date on what will happen to a bubble. So in my prognosis, I don't think we are in a bubble. Of course, we are at extremes in terms of returns. And uh, I think we'll have a period where there will be subpar returns. Uh, but the ingredients for a, let's say, bursting of a bubble, at least in Indian markets, are not present. We need m many years of progress and growth to reach a phase where we get into a bubble territory. Mm -hmm. Kalpen, we are in this new world where central bank actions are dominating a lot of things. It seems central banks have been uh, being the driving force in this current market. Low interest rates, ample liquidity. So how do you guys approach managing the assets at DSP, keeping in point that central bank can do what it does at any given point? So yeah, I think central banks have truly become central to uh, you know, markets and direction of markets. 
and uh, we've realized that uh, predicting their actions is not our forte it is not our strength uh, you know we can plot uh, the the journey of liquidity we can plot uh, how the past trends of interest rates have been but uh, taking a view on you know how how long will central banks uh, continue to support when will they change or they may want to support but markets may have a different point of view these are very difficult uh, uh, macro dimensions to really predict and project so we try to keep it uh, very simple we are aware of these macros uh, we we read them we analyze them but in our portfolio construction we narrow it down to very few fundamental metrics that are you know which are the companies uh, which will uh, navigate through ups and downs which are the companies which have a right to win in their sectors which are the companies which are increasing market share and which are the companies where uh, uh, you know managements are uh, able to execute their business plans uh, very well through good times as well as bad times um, sometimes we go right sometimes we go wrong as long as our hit rate is 70% uh, you know we are fine and i think that's worked for us over the last uh, uh, you know two decades of managing money because in these 24 years of our existence we've seen many cycles like this Uh, this hmm. has worked for us of you know trying to be more uh, uh, macro aware and uh, uh, focus more on stock picking and then what we've done is uh, we've tried to allocate our uh, you know portfolio for around 80000 crores of equity assets to three different styles one style is uh, combi- uh, you know growth and quality style portfolio construction the second style is uh, a style which respects valuation more so there is a pool of capital there and the third style is a blend of all three so you know that in a way gives us a framework or a structure uh, to build our portfolio so there will be a phase when growth and quality style will continue to do very well but the value driven style uh, may not do as well and vice versa so we've created templates like this and then we offer it as a menu card to our investors with clarity that okay this is what mm-hmm. style means um, and now it's your choice depending on your overall portfolio construction you can pick and choose products or mix and match products so that's the way we try to you know give a structure give some anchors and a framework uh, for our own teams to decide how to build portfolios as well as for investors to decide which portfolio should they pick uh, for their own uh, uh, you know portfolio construction you guys had recently shared that only a handful say about 25 or 40 investors remained invested throughout the 24 25 year journey of dsp flex cap fund this is quite shocking are there any reason in your experience apart from of course fear and greed that cause investors to quit investing early okay so i'll take this first uh, this data is not unique to uh, dsp uh, this data is not unique to any single fund or even any single stock if you look at mm-hmm. uh, you know most owners of uh, an asset class which has volatility the equity as an asset class has uh, a reasonable volatility uh, over a short period of time right uh, annual returns have been as high as 120% for uh, nifty as low mm-hmm. as minus 60% Uh, in certain years so when mm-hmm. volatility is so large uh, investors are not used to such volatility and which is why holding periods uh, are uh, you know fairly short the game of equity investing and compounding is uh, you know decadal investing uh, however when we look at uh, a data of uh, you know the number of unit holders who uh, what is the holding period across the fund industry over the last 25 years uh, since you know when data has been available the average holding periods have been uh, oscillating between 3 years to 5 years so that's the nature of the beast uh, you know investors think of uh, this asset class as uh, uh, un- unfortunately short term because so much of data is available mm-hmm. every day uh, so much of news mm-hmm. is available every day to influence your decisions unlike uh, fixed deposit where there is no new uh, news flow you know there is never a discussion that our fixed deposits in a bubble uh, or uh, is uh, you know my home in a bubble so uh, it's it's more behavioral in nature it's not unique to dsp it's a global phenomenon anything which has volatility uh, imagine it like a very fast moving car but which is shaking a lot so even if it reaches its destination 99% of times but people get out every time the fluctuations uh, improve or uh, increase so i think uh, it's it's all about um, uh, a, a temperament of acknowledging upfront that this tiger uh, this is a tiger first of all you cannot tame it the only way mm-hmm. you can ride it is by being aware of its volatility by being aware of mm-hmm. the nature of this beast and uh, you know living through it uh, with uh, uh, acceptance a uh, lot of people look at only the good side of volatility and invest uh, when when last one two three year returns are good but when the second uh, phase of the cycle starts we un- get unnerved and uh, tend to get out of the uh, asset class but no. i think uh, 
that's exactly the reason why few are rewarded and uh, uh, more are not can platforms and amc do something to get more investors to stick around for longer because uh, i think see uh, uh, there are two schools of thought to this uh, one school of thought is uh, you know for decades and decades everyone has tried uh, uh, to you know crack behavior and behavior mm-hmm. is uh, uh, evolution wired right it's wired over uh, uh, probably uh, thousands and thousands of years the history of markets is only 100 or 200 years right. so for for both to converge will will probably take a lot of time uh, but what can platforms and uh, you know people like us do is create a uh, strong behavioral nudges uh, to to you know educate investors about the nature of this uh, uh, asset class which means at the time of investing itself if we are able to highlight that okay you you are investing are you aware of you know the ups and downs of this asset class uh, the minimum time horizon should be ex- uh, you know at least 7 to 10 years there will be phases of uh, poor returns and uh, depending on your temperament you may choose either a pure equity product or a hybrid product today uh, through great ui and ux we can actually design very interesting nudges and mm-hmm. we've done that for example you know i'll give you a small statistic uh, last year uh, in the you know uh, phase of correction when uh, uh, many investors wanted to stop their sips we just highlighted one data point that similar phases occurred in the last 20 years three times uh, and investors who stayed put uh, in the next 2 to 3 years their navs went up by this amount this was actual hard data uh, this insight at the time of mm-hmm. pressing the stop sip button uh, helped us to reduce the number of cancellations by around 25% now we would have been happy with uh, you know everyone staying put but whatever you know one step uh, forward Uh, for example uh, we we highlight um, uh, rolling returns more than last one year return so last one year return may be 120% in some of our schemes but we highlight median rolling returns over a seven year period so that expectations are rightly set uh, we highlight what can go wrong uh, if your time horizon is only one and three year there there are phases of negative 50% negative 20% in shorter time horizons are you aware of that so in mm-hmm. that sense educating investors uh, you know with data and with great behavioral nudges can be one step for platforms like us to encourage investors to think long term and lastly you know we we run a concept called birthday sip so you know every time um, uh, our uh, distributors or investors have uh, their birthday instead of just wishing them happy birthday we highlight that if you have done an sip on the date of your birth uh, this is the type of value it would have created for you and provided uh-huh. you had stayed invested for long so it is connecting That's a really interesting traditional process to an emotional uh, moment of an individual's life uh, and mm-hmm. i think small nudges like this can go a long way in uh, improving the longevity of our investors and their compounding uh, after that so nudges yes we at zeroda also know a thing or two about this yes so kalpen markets have made a stunning rebound since march 20 and since then the returns for various equity fund categories have been in the range of 30 to 80% in the case of individual small cap funds their returns are 150 to 200% even even it seems everybody in the last year is making money whether they are coming the first day into the markets or they have been here for years so uh, there are neighbors who are talking about crypto and nfts and all these uh, newer asset classes in this scenario if someone talks about prudence and patience and discipline you risk sounding like a you know a fool or a anachronistic sort of person so the investors who have been doing the boring stuff should they uh, you know dabble into the high return asset classes or they should continue to do boring stuff as they have always done i'll tell you what i am doing uh, i continue with the boring stuff because i don't yet understand the interesting stuff and i will not uh, rubbish it by saying that you know it's more risky or higher risk uh, just because mm-hmm. i don't understand it uh, there is uh, a space of understanding how some of these crypto assets work but i personally don't understand it at this point in time and i follow one principle i am better looking like a fool uh, if if that helps me uh, you know protect my capital even at the cost of some loss of returns versus wow. looking a bigger fool where uh, it is actually loss of capital so that's the approach mm-hmm. i uh, have towards my investing i have you know reduced my uh, equity exposure for example in the last two months because you know it crossed um, 70% of you know my number of asset allocation that i want to have 70 uh, 20 and 10 is the asset allocation i like to keep so that number had breached and hence i took the opportunity of these rising navs to rebalance a bit to normalize it 
Uh, and of course, since then the NAVs have continued to rise, and uh, somewhere you know make me feel that did I act too fast? But it's okay, part of the game. Sometimes uh, you know rules. Uh, there is a price to pay if you want to follow rules and uh, uh, be a survivor in the long term. And this game is all all about surviving. Uh, it's about you know lasting till the end. Mm. If you end up lasting till the end, one percent lower return uh, will not matter. But you know having five percent extra return on an Excel sheet, but not lasting for twenty years. Uh, is uh, not really a good source of compounding. So I would say, uh, you know, whatever you invest in, whether in uh, traditional assets or some of these uh, uh, new age assets, ask this question: that okay, what are their sources of returns? What are the sources of risk? What can go wrong? Do I understand them? And if the answer to all of that is yes, by all means, uh, be open to uh, all means of understanding uh, of uh, different asset classes, and then uh, put it in your portfolio. Makes sense. Sahil, you'll have something to add on this. Yes. So I'll uh, I share a. an anecdote so if you go back in history and see a lot of traders not investors what they do is when there are when there is a new bull market or a big crash in the market what they do is that they let go of their teams and they hire young blood who've not seen the bear market and why they do that is they don't want any baggage because once the new trader comes in he'll hit everything which is available whether it's a new asset class new F- nft and he will create outsized returns but the same investors and traders will get burned when the next bear market comes and what most of these traders used to do is shut down their firm and create a new one once again so eventually what happened is only about 5 or 7% of these firms eventually beat the s&p 500 over over a period of time so it's the it's the slow and the boring over a very long period of time which continues to do well and i think that that we should stick with that and secondly if if there are new ideas you can participate with them but you have to take care of your asset allocation i think that is the most important point so this question would be based on some of the recent tweets and blogs you guys have published so i'm asking this because investors keep getting it wrong they think they understand it but do they really so what is asset allocation what are the ingredients to a good asset allocation and how is uh, someone who is starting today get this right or at least try to move in the right direction yeah so see how i look at it at asset allocation is to first to have a goal where you want to reach and second you study history i think these two are the first two ingredients to create asset allocation you should know where do you want to reach and what kind of returns can make you reach that point once you understand that then you create an optimum mix of different assets and how do you pick these assets you need to create or put these ingredients in such a ratio that the overall correlation or the movement of these assets are different from each other so that your journey is more smooth and it has lower speed bumps and how i look at it is you have to get a mix of equity much higher mix of equity because eventually that is going to provide very large returns and secondly you should use debt it acts like a uh, seed belt and i i actually call it uh, a very important uh, harness to your portfolio and then you use something like a uncorrelated asset class like a gold or other precious metals or you put alternative assets and the last and the most important one is cash okay it has to be a certain portion of your allocation uh, an emergency fund kind of an allocation which helps you in bad times so these are the most four most basic asset classes uh, a mix of them provides a much better experience than only any single asset class my take on uh, asset allocation is uh, as follows uh, each individual's asset allocation has to be unique to himself or herself has to be personal because each uh, individual's uh, life journey is different mindsets are different cash flows are different time horizons are different asset allocation uh, is like you know uh, you are going to buy a car and uh, uh, you get a car where uh, uh, you don't have uh, an accelerator a brake or a seat belt instead you have three accelerators now the three accelerators means you can speed fast you can reach your destination fast but if something goes wrong in between there is no way uh, you can survive an accident so mm-hmm. you will we, we will never buy a car with three accelerators or three brakes just because it's very safe or three seat belts you need a right mix of uh, each uh, instrument uh, each component asset allocation is nothing but having the right mix of components personalized to our own context 
Um, so, you know, equity is like an accelerator because in the long term, it accelerates our uh, purchasing power better than any other asset class. Fixed income acts as uh, a break. Uh, whenever, you know, there are uh, uh, there is a crowding happening on the roads, you need to break to prevent accidents. Mm-hmm. That's where fixed income plays a role. Uh, and gold, in a way, acts as a seatbelt when, when there is, you know, major accident or panic in traditional asset classes. Gold has, at least so far in the last 100 years, uh, proven to be a good savior. Uh, finally, a good asset allocation will achieve two objectives for us. For the same level of long-term returns, it can bring down the fluctuations and the volatility of our NAV and our portfolio. Or alternatively, for the same level of volatility, it can enhance our returns. So it's a very scientific process. It is a very often used, loosely used word, but a lot of science should go into it. A lot of thought should go into it. Uh, investors mm-hmm. should think uh, by mixing and, and matching these asset classes. And the way I do it is I always look back. See, like I said, this whole game is about surviving sharp corrections. So, you know, whenever I, I build a portfolio for myself or I recommend it to someone, I always ask that look at history and, you know, our history is only around 25 years for, for Indian stock markets. Yeah. Which were those four or five uh, phases when NAVs or stocks fell by 40, 50 percent? Or for four or five years, give zero returns. And then ask, in that phase, what did better? So if you look at the phase between 2010 to 13, or even 2008 peak to 2013, uh, what did better than Indian equity was uh, fixed income, gold, and international stocks, for example. Likewise, in the first decade, when, um, uh, when global stocks did nothing, when US markets had a lost decade, Indian markets and emerging markets did very well. So there are phases of different asset classes and how they deliver. Uh, it's important to blend them together. And ideally, the last point I would make is overweight that asset class, which has not done too well in the last five or 10 years, because the margin of safety or the valuation is more favorable for that asset class for it to deliver in the future, especially when asset classes are very cyclical. Here. So which mm-hmm. would be more uh, prominent for equities and gold. These are two more cyclical asset classes. Fixed income is more linear as an asset class. So you don't need to really time it a lot. But the other two asset classes can have some amount of timing coming out of valuation. Right. Let's talk about a takeaway from here, the seed belt, the breaks here. So, Kalpen Sahil, given the low interest rate era we are in, how should investors think about fixed income? Because if you go out and chase yield, you risk losing money. And if not, you're stuck with low returns. So, it feels like being stuck between a rock and a hard place. So, what should investors do and not do when it comes to debt at this point in time? So at this point in time, what we feel is that there could be a barbell approach because right now we don't know where we are in the cycle or specifically where will the interest rate cycle turn. That is the most important turning point that is going to be for fixed income, at least in the last five years and the next five years. Once the turn is apparent in numbers, we could probably start planning it differently. But till that time, I think you should probably make part of your portfolio uh, aligned towards the short end, that means the short term duration between one to three years. And the other part of your portfolio could be at a longer end because the term spread or the interest rates at between five to 10 years are very high from historical standpoint. So probably a barbell approach will uh, help you in terms of a good debt mix right now. And once the cycle turns, you would want to lock in higher yields later on. So you have to be prepared for that. So I think this barbell approach could probably help you in navigating at least the next one year. Uh, If I have to invest fixed income money only in one product or one product category, I would say it should be the short term fund bucket Hmm. because this bucket does, you know, in a way what Sahil mentioned, it buys three year, five year bonds to a certain extent because their yields are higher yields there are around 5 to 6% versus repo rates of 3%. So we call it the term spread. So part of the portfolio is invested there in AAA bonds. In some part of the portfolio, 10 to 20% is invested in 10-year government bonds, uh, which are, you know, again, sovereign and uh, safer in nature. And some part is in one-year assets. So if interest rate cycle were to turn, the one-year component will, you know, hedge you against uh, rising rates. But more importantly, the first point that you mentioned that then when rates are low, there is always a desire for yield. Hmm. And these are times when we make accidents and wrong investment decisions. When rates are low, we need to acknowledge and accept that rates are low. And I will earn, uh, you know, lower returns on my fixed income portfolio. There is no need to optimize fixed income. You know, 4% uh, 
giving you half a percent more will not change our destiny. But trying to take that extra risk and losing capital uh, will hurt our long-term compounding. So I think it's important to acknowledge that the role of fixed income is just to defend and not to score runs and uh, keep it for a rainy day tomorrow when you know volatility hits in other asset classes and you want to rebalance. That exactly is the uh, value of fixed income, not really enhancing of returns. Right. So this is emphasized in your tweets a lot. Uh, what is the role of investor behavior? And given the times we are in, I think role and importance of investor behavior becomes even more important. So what are some takeaways and insights you can give to the listeners to have a framework regarding investor behavior? How should it be accounted for? And what is noise and should be left out? Okay. Um, so two very important insights, I think. Uh, hoarding and safety is inherent to human nature you know we try to get stuff with us hoard and uh, always look at safety whenever threatened and second point is our feeling that this time it could be different whether it is good or bad so these two different set of emotions uh, create the problem specifically in investing you know when things are good most people feel that this is going to continue extrapolating the best trends which are available to you right now uh, it's a it's a recipe for disaster and similarly extrapolating very bad trends when things are bad again a recipe for disaster so i think a key learning is to look at investing and it's a cycle you know it's it's very very cyclical most asset classes are cyclical in nature returns are very cyclical in nature and what you have to do is you have to take a line from the meander which is less volatile you don't have to flow with the river in all directions that is a behavior which can be developed over time it doesn't come in the first year second year third year but you can have some tools which can help you do that you know asset allocation is one such tool and secondly trying to create a corner in your mind which is the devil's advocate or a contrarian thinking that that helps a lot that helps you take decisions which are better uh, and helps you, you know, not get flown um, into the wind. I think that is, these are the few points which comes to mind. I'll just uh, compliment what uh, Sahil mentioned. Uh, I would say that uh, behaviorally, this is the time to, you know, if, if, if ever we have to panic as investors, normally by uh, our wiring, we panic when prices are lower, when prices crash, and which is the worst time to panic. If at all one has to panic, panic now when you know you're getting very good prices for your investments, whether on your bonds or on your domestic stocks or on your global stocks, everywhere prices are uh, you know reasonably on the higher side. So if at all you need to panic, panic today to rebalance your portfolio or if you have any other goals. I had a very long term goal of uh, buying a home of my own, which I had deferred for long because I always felt that uh, at one, one and a half percent rental yield in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. And interest rates were seven, eight, nine percent, and equity yields uh, were on an average, uh, you know, much higher. It didn't merit um, living in a, uh, you know, home in Mumbai because Mumbai is very expensive. But right. in this cycle, when uh, you know uh, asset prices have been rising much faster than otherwise, uh, I've taken this opportunity to take some money out and uh, actually, you know, buy a home for myself. I'm just giving an example that. Uh, these are times to fulfill some of the other uh, uh, goals that uh, you may have as an investor. Number two, uh, if you don't need money, uh, do nothing. Because, um, you know, this whole narrative around uh, 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 there is a bubble. In fact, there is a bubble in the narrative that there is a bubble. Because it's been going on for uh, you know, mm-hmm. so long. There are mm-hmm. so many conversations around uh, the word bubble right now. Uh, markets are higher than, you know, uh, what probably they deserve to be by uh, maybe 10 or 15%. But markets are never in equilibrium. Uh, so it doesn't mean that if markets are higher by 15%, they have to fall 15%. They may consolidate for two, three years and, uh, you know, catch up, uh, earnings can catch up over time, valuations will come down accordingly. So as investors, we can't time it. So if you don't need money, just do nothing, ignore the noise, uh, ignore the noise around, you know, what to do because you don't need to do anything. Um, just to give another example, the top companies of India, uh, you take the top 10 companies in uh, Sensex, for example, whether it's TCS or HDFC Bank, or Infosys, or Reliance, or, um, you know, uh, uh, LNT across sectors, they don't wake up every morning and say that, okay, because my price is high, let me close my business <laughs> and, you know, come back again. Let me do my asset allocation again. So they don't behave that way. 
they keep on you know doing their job and over time that's how value creation happens profit creation happens so i think the the you know nature of investing has to be decadal we can achieve nothing with one year two year or three year returns real returns are made only you know if you hold for two to three decades and and we have those holding period it's not that we don't have right we have held gold for generations we have held our ppf for 20 30 years we have fixed deposits that our parents have passed on to us as inheritance so we have the ability to hold asset classes mm-hmm. but just because an equity mutual fund nab is published every day and is transparently communicated and there is lot of conversation around it there is a impulse of acting so the second behavioral uh, uh, advice i would give is do nothing if you do not need to do anything mm-hmm. so do not look into nabs every single day or multiple times a day <laughs> so great takeaways and on a lighter note there is another takeaway that in mumbai even fund managers have to defer their house purchases for a very long time it seems yes <laughs> so yeah this ties in nicely to the next question sahil you recently wrote a piece titled easy peasy and uh, we link it in the show notes so the uh, listeners can read it I think this is a piece is particularly relevant can you talk about what the piece is about and why you wrote it so lastly see there is a perception that uh, many investors have that they can pick the best asset class or probably the perception is that whatever they are picking is going to be the best you know it's going to outperform everything that's the that the basic underlying theme they when they start and probably they also feel that they can find uh, a money manager a fund manager which can beat everybody else okay and these two premises in statistically are extremely rare you know there are there are very few instances where this could happen and if at all it happens you should consider it as your luck you know picking the best asset class or the fund manager and even if you pick it and even if you were the lucky one whether you can be with that asset for the longest duration where it created that amount of wealth these two combinations are so rare that i think it's it's purely luck or probably as earlier we saw in the example where probably people have just stuck to an asset class for 20 30 years and they they've got that kind of a return the full cycle return so you speak so in my opinion two things that you should do first is understand what is your own horizon if your horizon is 10 20 30 years of wealth creation stick to that don't do things every year every quarter every week every day it will not add value and secondly if you don't understand an asset class seek help and once you seek help the right kind of help it will help you in creating a framework which is going to take you to your goal and that is what what it should be you know your ultimate value addition is to achieve your goal Okay once you've set your goal I think that is what it should be. Excellent. So you guys have always had a stable of international funds and have some new launches and new filings and given that US market seems to be in an overvalued territory and there are concerns regarding inflation and tapering and they can remain there for longer than any of us can predict. even if it's a bubble us has the potential to stay in bubbles longer than anyone else so what role does international diversification play at this point in time and how should investors think about this should we follow the american dream so let me take that first uh, you know i uh, i would say that international investing is like building an ipl team uh, <laughs> a good ipl team uh, is a mixture of uh, great uh, indian talent young as well as experienced as well as uh, global talent some of the best players in our ipl teams have come from different parts of the world mm-hmm. so international investing definitely adds a lot of value because there are some amazing companies globally uh, which are transforming the world which are you know making huge impact which are catering to the global profit pools whereas indian companies may cater to largely the domestic profit pools mm-hmm. so you get diversification of different countries geographies as well as uh, you know cycles on one hand you do get some amount of hedge against currency volatility which many times impacts emerging markets including india though in the last few years india's currency stability has really enhanced a lot and may continue like that for quite some time uh, and the last thing you mentioned is you know uh, global markets are expensive like every other market you know mm-hmm. india is no longer uh, unique 
So in India, uh, our market valuations are 25 to 35 times on an average over the last two to three years. Uh, if you look at uh, SNP or uh, you know any of these global uh, indices or some of the you know best stocks out there, they have also compounded their profits at 10 to 15 percent and are available between 25 to 30 times valuation. So uh, 10 years back, emerging markets were emerging and you know they were not fully discovered. There was a meaningful valuation discount. That discount has narrowed down for you know both uh, markets to equalize on one hand. Uh, in fact, what we did while while we we have offered these international funds since 2008, the attention to them started on almost 12 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, after you know they started doing very well, we would have been happy if more money would have come all through the journey, or we should have made more efforts towards that. But last year we did something very interesting in December. We recognized that valuations overall are expensive, so we created a first step for international investing, which is by saying that if you don't want to go the whole hog, don't do that. Start with a portfolio where 70 rupees is in good companies of India, but not very expensive. Mm-hmm. And another 30 rupees goes to some of these iconic global value investors like a Berkshire Hathaway, like a Linsell Train, like Veritas, like Harding Lovner. These are all uh, you know investors who respect valuation at the mm-hmm. same time quality of businesses. So 30 rupees uh, gets allocated to uh, you know five global uh, value investors who have been doing this for decades and decades and you know who invest across the world so it's not us alone uh, this portfolio has half half of these companies in us uh, another, around 20% in europe uh, 8 to 10% in japan and rest in asia so you you get a diversified slice of um, good companies which are not necessarily at the peak of their valuation cycle and uh, you know we, uh, similar principles of value investing that we follow here in india so that's one way for investors to you know start their journey of international investing and diversification because what i worry is only looking at last 10 year returns if one says that okay now i want to only have international funds in my portfolio because in last 10 years they have done better than indian portfolios that would again be extrapolating recency extrapolating the last five year returns into the future and which may not work today mm-hmm. morning itself i tweeted that in the last one year since international investing has taken off in india Indian markets are up 55% and US markets are up 33%. Of course, both are very good. 33% itself is like three years of returns. But the point I'm making is chasing returns should not be the reason for international diversification. Uh, Having low correlated portfolios, having uh, access to great business models in different parts of the world and uh, having a very, you know, balanced portfolio uh, uh, is the outcome that international investing should add uh, to our Indian investors. Speaking about uh, international diversification, you guys also run a gold mining fund. How do you guys view the role of gold? Because this asset is probably the most confusing of all. Also, pure gold versus gold miner exposure. How should investors think about it? What is different here? Uh, See, historically, gold has been a great store of value. You know, I put out a tweet some time ago that over a 3600-year period, gold has maintained its value you could buy the same amount of bread you could buy 3600 years ago today so that's the kind of store of value that gold is but when it comes to participating in a bull trend when gold prices are doing well i think it's better done through gold mining companies because what they do is they provide you operating and financial leverage the returns get magnified Uh, opposite is also true when gold doesn't do well so as a thematic play I think gold mining companies or gold equities, so so we call them, they have a beta of about 1.5 to 2. And in bull markets, it, it goes even higher. So from a participation, from a structural standpoint, I think gold mining equities do very, very well. Just to give you two data points, last structural bull market, the most recent one in gold started in about 1999, went on till 2011, you know, about for about 12 years. In, in that phase, gold actually multiplied eight, eight and a half times. But gold mining stocks, they multiplied more than 23 times. So that's the kind of, uh, you know, magnifying effect that uh, the, these gold equities can perform. And to my mind, I think we have another structural gold bull trend, which began maybe somewhere in 2018-19. And probably it will run for some time. I don't know for how long. But uh, I think in this period, certain allocation to gold mining equities could be really beneficial. I'm very personally interested about, and I'm sure listeners are as well, 
So what are your personal investment philosophies? How do you think about investment and markets as a whole? If you can, uh, you know, visualize it for us, that'll be great. Sure. Uh, Let me go first. First is, I think I'm a conservative investor by, uh, you know, by my own inclination. I'm not very aggressive in nature. That's why I keep a lot of cash in my portfolio. Unlike a lot of investors who, uh, you know, like to have very high proportion of risk uh, risk bearing and return bearing assets. Secondly, I'm a, a little bit contrary in nature. I like to have some cash and buy in panics and probably be on the sidelines when things are very aggressive. So these two are my personal principles that I work in, in, in throughout my cycles. Generally, I try to keep my equity exposure about 60-65% in good times and as low as 25% in bad times, you know, when I see that markets are euphoric in nature and uh, a large portion towards debt. And right now my allocation is tilted towards uh, debt and gold and to gold mining stocks and uh, slightly lower to equity. I am equally, I guess, competitive uh, because I uh, started my career seeing uh, 80% fall in the most popular theme of the day that time, which was technology. It was in 1992. Mm-hmm. So when you start your career with such sharp drawdowns, uh, automatically fear of volatility is very large. Mm-hmm. But over time, I've seen that uh, the direction of uh, return-bearing assets is only up. Nick Murray has always said that uh, all corrections are temporary, all rallies are permanent. So I try to blend these two uh, uh, dualities together. And there will be sharp corrections every three to four years, but over long periods of time, markets will keep rising. So these are the two uh, extremes and uh, the truth is somewhere in between. My current uh, asset allocation is uh, 40 rupees in um, uh, funds investing in Indian companies. 20 rupees is in funds investing in uh, global companies. Around uh, another uh, 25 rupees is in uh, short-term bond fund. And uh, the balance 15 rupees is equally split between sovereign gold bonds and uh, the world gold mining fund. I like to invest more in an asset class. So basically, if you notice, there are these four simple asset classes that are a part of my portfolio. And, uh, you know, it's Indian uh, equities, global equities, gold and uh, fixed income. And um, all of them have um, meaningful weight, but not very dominant weight. So even Indian equities is 40 uh, or global equities is not just 5 or 10, but it's 20. Or gold is not just 5, but it's 15. And fixed income is also 25. So it's reasonably spread out right now because uh, these are times when returns have been very easy. My belief is easy returns uh, don't uh, last uh, so long. And uh, when returns are very easy, I would like to spread out my portfolios. When returns come down in a particular asset class, I would like to you know gradually in- uh, increase the asset allocation. Uh, in that particular asset class. Mm-hmm. So these are two uh, scenarios in which I, uh, you know, manage my portfolio. I don't uh, uh, act uh, very frequently. Once in two or three years is when I would uh, do any major rebalance only if required. Otherwise, I let the fund managers do their job. I let the owners of companies and the professionals of companies do their job. I don't interrupt my compounding unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Kalpin, this is for you, given your experience in the industry. So if you were to take chance or half a chance at predicting what the f- next 5-10 years in the mutual fund industry, AMC industry looks like, what would it be? I think, uh, uh, I, you know, what we started off when we started our careers in 1999 uh, with the hope and the promise that this is a great industry, transparent, tax efficient, uh, simple, easy to understand. All those ingredients uh, uh, were there in place then and they are in place today also. A new force which has, you know, got introduced in the last five years is massive digitization and, uh, you know, access to smartphones. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, today, every investor who has a mobile or a smartphone uh, becomes my office or, you know, is my branch. So uh, access has just opened up. And I think that from current penetration levels of, uh, you know, four crore investors, this number will only multiply over the next five and ten years. And uh, there will be more choices available to investors. We are seeing that every day. Uh, Choices in terms of, you know, active funds, passive funds, uh, innovation, uh, global funds, uh, different asset classes. So I think the industry is progressing uh, in a very constructive uh, uh, way, in a very pragmatic way. 
a lot of positive developments one after the other in terms of either you know transparency in terms of uh, you know regulatory um, uh, clarity in terms of uh, um, simplicity in terms of digitization uh, i think a uh, 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 lot more number of investors will get access to this beautiful product mm-hmm. and uh, i always said that mutual funds can fulfill the need of someone who wants to put uh, 10000 crores the largest investor by the way in the fund industry has around 1 lakh crore uh, in mutual funds mm-hmm. put together it can fulfill the need for someone who wants to put just 1000 rupees so it can cater to all the extremes number one number two it you can invest for one day in an overnight fund you can invest for two decades in long term fund so again uh, it has the whole range available so I think uh, I'm very positive about this industry playing mm-hmm. a very important role in lives of uh, our investors and helping them compound their money and uh, lead a better uh, financial future. Right. So learning being a continuous process which goes on throughout the life of course all our listeners cannot have as much experience in the markets as you have. Uh but if there were some books or podcasts or movies that you'd recommend them that'll further their learning if just one recommendation which you would have wanted everyone to listen read or see what would it be i'll go first um, you know i'll give three book recommendations one is the psychology of money by uh, morgan housel mm-hmm. uh, it talks about uh, the attitude towards investing and uh, the ironies of investing so you know return on one side volatility on other side unpredictability randomness scale right. combination of all these um, uh, in in my 22nd year in this business uh, when i read that book i realized that i still don't know a lot mm-hmm. so this is a very important book which will help you become a better investor from a temperament point of view uh, uh, the second book is the intelligent investor not an easy read but if uh, you know your uh, listeners can read the chapter 8 of um, the inter- intelligent investor mm-hmm. uh, that is the second recommendation i would give and another book which has really made huge impact on my investing style is a book called the art of thinking clearly by rolf dobelli uh, it talks about uh, some 50 odd uh, biases that we have in life uh, uh, the the errors we make in decision making and uh, how to overcome them and how to you know apply them to uh, to your uh, personal investing mm-hmm. so these are three books that i would recommend so those are some great oh. recommendations sahil So I read a lot of non-finance books but uh, as an investor I think uh, the the book that comes to mind initially and the most important one is itself the most important thing by Howard Marks mm-hmm. I think it is one of the most important uh, books and if you read the illustrated copy it's an excellent one that is my recommendation number 1 uh, second recommendation is to do with commodities because I think people have lost sight of how the world works Mm. uh it's a very very important read the world for say sale by uh, uh a, a new two new authors who've come recently uh, who are bloomberg journalists for a very long time mm-hmm. and uh, th- those uh, jack farchies is name i think a very very important read um, for all of us and third book recommendation may be similar to what kalpen said um, uh, uh, from morgan hosel uh the psychology of money i think it's again a very very important book to understand long long term compounded and our biases mm-hmm. which are very important um one more book which uh, has helped shape my thinking in terms of um investing is business adventures uh, by john brooks mm-hmm. it's an old book i think yes. about 50 60 years old yes uh, it, it's a nice read it gives you an understanding of what has happened over 100 years and it puts uh, things into right perspective so these are the few books that comes to my mind mm-hmm. a very key takeaway from uh, the psychology of money which i think is going to last with me for a very long time it's that uh, when it stated that we are just new to the markets and a lot of uh, it is expected from us but the markets are a very new concept and it will take a long time for us to completely understand them yet we expect someone from you know one or two generations of retirement and we expect everyone to know everything about retirement whereas the concept of retirement itself is so new so these were some really really uh, lasting concept from those recommendations listeners go through all those recommendations and keep learning and with this we come to the end of this episode there were a lot of takeaways a lot of insights that we'll keep going through maybe it'll require another listen two or three times and there were a lot of analogies used which uh, helped us visualize the market more seed bell breaks meandering rivers 
so this was my favorite part of the episode i got a lot of visual aids to my thinking thank you so much kalpen thank you so much sahil this was amazing we'll have you again views expressed are personal and based on current market conditions actual events or results may differ returns are not assured listeners should take professional advice before investing this is not a solicitation or investment advice to buy or sell any scheme or any security under any sector sectors mentioned are for illustrative purposes only mutual fund investments are subject to market risks read all scheme related documents carefully <laughs>